Well, hello, my death listeners, and welcome to Death Talker Unscripted, episode three today. Um, it's Friday, and I just wanted to welcome everyone and say thanks for tuning in. And I appreciate just with the first two episodes that I have done, I, I didn't expect what I got. I didn't expect it to be off the charts. I didn't expect to really have any followers. Listeners was really good. So, um, I'm really honored and I'm really graced that um, you all choose to tune in and listen to what I have to say. And hopefully I make some sort of um, energy that allows you, if nothing else, just to maybe think of things a little bit differently when it comes to death. And for those of you that are tuning in and really want to know about death, I thank you so much. Keep following me. Keep coming along. And it's going to be an amazing journey. So this week's podcast is about people that I admire in the death movement or in the death world. Some of the people that I'm going to mention will probably not be your, the majority's idea of who I would choose to be a mentor or who I would look up to. I don't really care but I am going to bring these people to light and maybe explain to you how and why they have an impact on me and my death talking, my death walking. The topic today is death mentors I would die for. And it's just that these are mentors in the death field that I would have given anything to be side by side with. A couple of them I did, and I'm honored in so many ways, and I grew up with them, so I couldn't have a better little bit of teaching and tradition and family. But the first person that I really comes to mind is my Grams. My Grams had a following of her own. She was what many people call a medicine woman or a healer. And so people would come from a lot of places and they would ask for her guidance. They would ask for her to help them. Some of them were very sick. Some of them were transitioning from old age into just the dying state. Some of them wanted tea leaves read. Others wanted tarot cards done. She did a little dabbling in both of those. But mostly what my grandmother did was she started with someone and she guided them through the life that they allowed her to. And she would guide them into a soft transitioning of you're going to die. So she made it a path for them to follow. And she led and guided with wisdom and insight and herbs and, you know, just all the kinds of things that to me would make my death journey and my life journey just abundantly, miraculously groovy. And she did this for as long as I can remember. Um, The second person that comes to mind is my mom. My mother was the reincarnation of a mother nature entity, if you will. She could take plants and she would talk to them and grow them and they would just do miraculous things for her. Same with animals. It was also, it was almost an intuitive, um, 
I don't know, vibration, if you will. And a lot of us are good with animals, but my mother was good with animals that most people would have run from. My mother would pick up a rattlesnake. Um, my mother would walk straight into a bullpen with a raging bull. So she had a way that an energy that she could exude for animals and plants. One of the favorite things that she would school us in growing up would come from our animals on the ranch and our garden. And with the garden, she would always explain to us the four seasons, how they related to life and death and how each one had its own purpose and its own um, molecular concept and everything was just connected. And it wasn't a big, long, oh, you know, the food is here to feed you or anything. No, it was just the process of if you do this and this and this and this and life begins, death will come, period. You can't have something be alive that hasn't, that won't die, or you can't have something that's dead that wasn't alive. So she taught us it was all a big circle. One, just a continuing life and death circle, life and death circle, life and death circle, life and death circle. And same with the animals. Um, we would be called out when the horse was going to deliver a colt or when the cow was going to deliver a calf or when our dogs were giving puppies, having puppies. A lot of those animals didn't make it and we were there for it. We watched the moment of life where it, the colt came out and it took a breath and then it was over. We watched the calf that yes, came out, but it was dead. It was dead from the moment that it, came out and it was probably dead inside the cow, the mother. So all these things were shown to us that this is what it's about. If you have life, you have death and there's nothing to be fearful about. There's nothing that's ucky about it. It is just as beautiful as life is and it's to be celebrated. It, made an effort to stay alive. It made an effort to become a living entity. So you must celebrate that. And when our animals died, we gave the same respect. They made it into this world. They plowed our fields for however long, or we rode them with great pleasure, but now they're getting old. And so we celebrated the fact of everything that that animal brought to this existence. And we compassionately, nine times out of 10, called our vet and we euthanized our elderly animals as well. So all of this was just a day-to-day -day happening up until I was probably, I don't know, 14 years old, give or take. So um, then other things started creeping in, you know, um, I'm beginning to be a teenager. And so the death thing had was kind of a curse as well because people would make fun of me and my friends and everything. So I just did a lot of research and kind of found out if there were other people like me who didn't have this phobia of death, who embraced it. And I didn't want to be an oddball. I didn't want to be a weirdo anymore. So I started looking for like-minded people. And um, the next one that I guess that kind of 
came into my purview. Um, this next one, everyone will know. Um, it was huge in this country. Uh, he was huge in this country and not in a big way, but it was Dr. Kevorkian. And I got to say, I really, really, I didn't know a lot about him. When I, but when I got to the part, what his nicknames were, I was all in. One of his nicknames was Dr. Death. I thought that was just awesome. And then the other, which I found very clever, was Jack the Dripper. <laughs> and so for when I started reading about him, I thought, man, I like this guy. He's not afraid to talk about it. He, uh, he was with 130 people. He assisted 130 people to their deaths. He was a euthanasia proponent, and I like that. But most of all, he was just a simple pathologist. Um, he wasn't a preacher, you know, he wasn't, he was just a simple person who looked at death through a perspective, through an eye that my world was, that I could bring into my world. And so for me, he was just an amazing, he was an amazing character, literally. Um, he served prison terms here and there. Um, the longest one I think he got was for 10 to 25 years. They were going to charge him with first degree murder, but they couldn't do that. Um, he hadn't really violated that law. There was no banning of the assisted uh, physician assisted suicide. So that charge was later dropped. But the fact that he um, he was convicted of a second degree murder um, and it was the delivery of the controlled substance, the lethal ejection, the gentleman that he gave it to or the patient that he gave it to was uh, suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, I believe he served either eight or nine years of the prison, but they let him out on good behavior. Um, the following year, he unsuccessfully campaigned for a seat in the U.S. Congress um, representing the suburbs of Detroit. I thought it would have been really, really, really cool if he had done that. Um, Dr. Kevorkian, for me, what makes him, I guess, the biggest part of my mentor is he really is a pioneer. He was an engineer back then of what today we are seriously looking at, like dying with dignity, medical aid and dying. Um, these are directly correlated from him and arising from him doing what he did. Um, he died in, I think, 2011 at 83 years of age. I'm not really sure. But one of his patients um, was really stood out in my mind, and that was Janet Adkins. She was 54 or 55, and she was suffering from early Alzheimer's, stage, you know, early stages of Alzheimer. And she literally walked up to him and said, I would like to kill myself. Can you help me do that? To me, that is the most beautiful statement you could ever possibly proclaim. And you shouldn't be penalized for saying it. You shouldn't be looked like you were some sort of mental defect that needed to be put in a rubber room. She looked at what her life was going to be with Alzheimer's. She looked at the person that she was going to become. She was mentally clear. She was a grown adult. 
she had managed to make great decisions her entire life of living and some bad ones probably too, but she was able to make those choices. And now all of a sudden she has what I consider to be a horrible long-term, just undignified form of dying and it's long-term. And she took a look at that and she said, no, that is not how I want to go out of this life. I don't want to be a shell of what I was, even if it's the shell that I created is a per, I am now blocked from everything in the world, in this world that I have worked so hard to love, admire, enjoy. And she boldly, without even blinking an eye said, I want to kill myself before that happens. Bravo, amen, and I've got my hair sticking up all over me right now. Then there are a few other people that I just kind of want to get through. Um, Lawrence Eghart, he was like the new Dr. Death. He was an anesthesiologist, and he ran into issues too, make no mistake, but he was also a pioneer. And then you have um, Jovis Van Ho. Um, He was... uh, He was a doctor, but he was more of a assistant than anything else. Physicians for Mercy, that was another one that I really kind of uh, was drawn to. And it was a group that supported Dr. Kevorkian. Um, George's Renee Ridding, he followed under the same lines as Dr. Kevorkian. He just carried it through a little bit more by then lethal injections had come up. Um, He was an herbologist, so he was able to use nightshade and some other things like that. Didn't fare well for him either. Um, (laughs) He ended up in a lot of trouble here. So, and then there was my favorite. This one I thought was interesting to me when it came to me because he wasn't a doctor of a terminally, you know, they, they weren't talking about a terminally ill person with a disease. This guy named Lev Thinenport. And if I pronounced his name wrong, I'm sorry about that. He was a psychiatrist and he brought up the notion of dying with dignity, using euthanasia for depression. And I'm not talking about a little depression here and there. I'm talking about a person who is diagnosed with depression from the age of, let's say, 21. They are now 84. They have tried every medicine along in the book and nothing seems to give them joy. Nothing seems to bring them a contentment. They are always just this far from being out of the hole and being able to live a life. And so they're mummified, they're stagnant. They only can stay in a self-induced medicine, maybe I'll kind of be okay, maybe I won't. But anyways, he was another one that just really and truly, I mean, he really hit home for me and I started thinking about that. Um, I've known several people and I'm currently with someone right now who has battled bipolar since he was like 22. He's now 73 and I can tell you being with him for the time that I have, his moments of pure joy are very few and far between. So anyways, these are just, like I said, a couple of people that in my world, they work. Um, In today's world, I love the human rights in the UK. Um, 
I also want people to know too that um, in 2007, 71% of Americans believe that a person who is diagnosed with a terminally ill, long-term terminal condition or terminal illness, should there should be a platform for compassionate dying. In this country right now, we have hospice. That, that's about it. Um, there are several states that are bringing in dying with dignity and that have made already and dying with dignity already on the books. And to those states, I just want to say thank you, thank you um, for all the people that came that way, you know, Dr. Kevorkian and Lawrence and just all the others that have really, really, truly just, you know, opened up this door. I want to thank you all for walking through and making it become manifesting it into something that is really, really a good thing. So, um, the other thing is, I would like to say that, um, there's a gentleman in Portland, Oregon, and I, I won't go into where it is, but, he has what he calls a death clinic and he opened it up in 2002, I believe. And you can go in and request to die as long as you meet the state of Oregon's medical aid and dying or dying with dignity. And it's a clinic. Does it get a lot of business? Yes. They've seen a few people from here and there. Does it cost money? Yes. It's about $5,000 all in all. Do I agree a hundred percent with it? I agree 90% with it. This is the beginning. This is the first step. Now I have my own version of what I'm putting together over the next, I hope to have it up and running over the next year. Um, so he has opened the door for what my next big project is going to be. And I've got to say, thank you for that. Um, about 72% now, and as of 2022, um, U.S. doctors, about 72% do believe in a more compassionate way of dying. They do believe in at least dying with dignity, and that's a good thing. The thing to remember is most of our blue states here in the country are more progressive, so these are the states that are more inclined to pass these laws. Um, the red states, not so much. The red states, and again, I, I'm going to say this, and it'll be for a later podcast, but I want people to remember that if there wasn't death, there'd be no religion, period. So for the red states who tend to be more of the Bible belt and stuff, there's a whole religious hangup that goes about that that just either doesn't allow them to be open-minded enough to look at these or they don't want to. And the other thing is, I think on some level, they might feel like they're violating the religious, the religious writings or commandments or whatever all that stuff's about. And that's not what this podcast is about. So anyways, um, the other thing that is pretty important to me and I always like to kind of bring it around. So I don't want to just focus on the United States and 
even though we're very far behind and we don't seem to be moving along very fast, we are advancing. But the rest of the world is advancing faster than us. Um, assisted euthanasia. And there it is. If anybody was looking at watching me right now and I'm watching you, I can just see your jaws hit the freaking floor. I can see you going, ah, 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 no way, assisted euthanasia. I, I can see it. I can hear it. I can feel it. And before you go through all that, please hear me out. Assisted euthanasia. I know what it connotates in most people's mind, but I want to ask you something. You people who have the assisted euthanasia as a, uh, 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 let me ask you something. Have you ever put your dog down? Did you ever put your cat down? Did you ever call your vet and go ahead and put little Maggie Mae down or Red Rover or I'd like to know what the difference is between giving your animal a compassionate and caring and loving death where you were holding them and reassuring them but you won't do that with a loved one. That's unacceptable for uh, euthanasia for your family member. Uh, so that's kind of how I feel when people talk to me about it. But euthanasia, assisted euthanasia is legal in seven countries. The Netherlands, um, Belgium, Luxembourg, Colombia, Canada, Victoria, and West Australia. Those are them. I, I believe I said seven. So, um, Belgium. Yeah, I said Belgium. Okay. Belgium is probably the second largest country that is actively using the assisted uh, euthanasia. And there have been about 2,966 people. So no, you have not had a flood of people going, kill me, kill me, I want to die. No, it's not like that. It won't be like that. Um, Netherlands, they've had roughly about the same amount. They've had about 2,046. Luxembourg has had um, a little over 900. Colombia, I could not get their numbers, but the last time that I saw their numbers was in 2022. 2020 and they were a pro uh, they were approaching the 1200 mark canada just recently started it so um the numbers on that are a little iffy west australia i couldn't find any west australia any numbers on the west australia but i do know it is legal at that particular juncture but anyways guys and gals this is these are people that just have made me understand my calling a little bit better, have made me understand that why I'm on the fringe and I don't fit in with the normal conformed societal view of death. And it has given me a foundation that I'm okay with. I know what my calling is. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know who I'm supposed to help because they come to me. I don't have to put ads out. I don't, they just come to me. And, you know, like I said, if I were standing on a stage and speaking to you, like I have in so many cases with my public speaking, when I do talk about my mentors, 
um, that, you know, I would literally die for. All of a sudden, it conjures up this image of the shining, you know, with Jack Nicholson popping his head through the broken bathroom door. And suddenly, after, you know, I've been droning on about my mentors, I keep looking around and it's like all of a sudden I've become Jack Nicholson peeping through the thing and everybody's going, here's Johnny. <laughs> so I don't, and I dig that. If that's my image, if that's the shock and awe that I need to at least get my foot through the door so that I can bring about the energy and the magic and the brilliance of death and why we should be embracing it. We should be building communities with it. We should be instigating it in our children's lives, our teenagers' lives. I mean, it's going to happen no matter what. And I always have found too, the less you fear something, the less you have fear of the unknown, usually the more positive energy comes in. And if we have less fear and if we have less closed-mindedness when it comes to are people dying? Then for me, I'm all for Dr. Convorkian. I'll be, I would be thrilled to carry the nicknames that some of these people, it's an honor. And Death Walker is my honor. To be called a Death Walker, I cannot tell you how it's beyond honor, it's beyond grace, it's universally and cosmically just in tune with everything when, when I'm doing that. So I want to thank you all for listening. And um, I hope I become a mentor of you all out there. And I hope that you will come to me and listen more and, you know, talk to me about death. Um, I'm pretty easy to talk to. And I've got great ancestors behind me. And so, yeah, follow along. Be well, my friends. Talk death. Talk death. It's so very important. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.